like to follow along, please turn again to the book of Galatians. I'm going to read verse 11 of chapter 1. Galatians 1, verse 11. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak this morning, that you would proclaim the truth of your word and of your gospel, of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and what you have done through him. Father, that we might have a response which glorifies you, that gives praise and honor to your name. We ask that you would do this for Jesus' sake and for the building up of your church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It didn't take long for Paul and his companion Barnabas to experience opposition in their first missionary journey together. You can read about the ministry that Paul embarked on in Acts 13 and 14 that relates to the book of Galatians that we are about to begin a study in. We begin in Acts 13 seeing them leaving Syrian Antioch and heading out to the island of Cyprus on their first leg of their journey. And eight short verses into chapter 13, there is the opposition of Elimas, the magician, right there in Cyprus. He didn't even make it to back to the mainland. Paul calls him an enemy of righteousness, this opposition, one who was trying to disrupt his proclamation of the gospel of God in Christ. But Paul, one who formerly in his life was in opposition himself to that very gospel, one to whom the cross of Christ was repugnant, did not shrink back at this time of attack. Paul, I can't imagine him in any battle shrinking or trying to compromise or trying to work a deal. But Paul goes on the offensive immediately, one who says, the gospel is under attack, not on my watch will it be broken down. And so he enters the battle for the faith. Attacks on the gospel basically come in two forms. Perhaps they, they come couched differently. We see different manifestations of them, and we'll see that the attack upon Paul, attacking his apostleship and the way he ministered in order to discredit his doctrine. But basically, there are two attacks on the gospel. The removal of some element is one of those attacks. People remove something from the basic gospel message of the scriptures, either denying the de deity of Christ, for example, or denying the humanity of Christ is just as bad, or disallowing that the cross of Christ is the instrument of redemption for mankind. 
And what is the result of that attack? It robs the gospel of its vitality. It, it robs the gospel of its uniqueness and of its awesomeness that this is the cross of Christ from eternity past, God's plan for the redemption of the world. The second attack is adding something extraneous to the gospel. Law-keeping, for example, in some form, as we'll see here in the book of Galatians, saying that circumcision is required for salvation, or salvation through the sacraments, baptismal regeneration, for example, or membership in some religious community is required. And so these things are added to the gospel. And what is the result? Salvation becomes man's. It's by his merit or by his choosing. And the cross of Christ, as Paul says, is made void. It becomes of no effect. And the second attack mode that we have listed here is what Paul addresses, I believe, in this letter. This letter, the epistle to the Galatians. Sometimes when we are trying to understand what something is, it is best to start with finding out what it is not. And I have learned that in my engineering work, but I was also pleased that in a recent experience I had with a local doctor, I've, I've had some kind of condition with my throat and my digestive system, and I went to this doctor who's probably less than half my age, and I'm thinking he's going to be like one of those many doctors who, in a sense, kind of pats, you know, especially us older one, on the back and says, you know, they're there, you know, I've got this under control. We call it playing God, at least my wife and I do. But this doctor said, you know, you would think with all of our modern medicine and all of our technology and all the things that we learn and study, he said, one of the things I came out of medical school with is that sometimes in order to understand what something is, we have to eliminate what it's not. And now I know there are a lot of things I don't have. <laughs> but I know that he is approaching it in a manner which is like what we see here in Paul. I mean, I don't know if you've ever gotten a letter that starts with the word no or not. Now, I probably wrote that typical letter when I was in college. You know, dear mom and dad, classes are going great. I'm making lots of new friends. Please send money. And I probably got a letter back that began no. <laughs> Glad you're enjoying your classes. Have a good time. You know, study hard. But Paul begins his letter with a no. Uh, Dr. Machen, who wrote a, a book um, that was published on his, his messages to his students when he taught them in Galatians, he says, Paul is a man who could say no. And what we find here, it's not a typical Pauline beginning to this letter. We expect to read Galatians 1.1, Paul, an apostle by the will of God, or Paul, an apostle, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, on a very positive note, a very uh, strong note. And here he says, Paul, an apostle, not not sent from men, nor through the agency of man. Later on, he says, do you think I am 
trying to please men. I'm not trying to please men, but God. I'm not trying to find favor with men, but God. And my gospel is not according to man. And I believe here that what we see is that he is saying this is what it's not in order for you to understand what it is. And yes, he's beginning with the defense of his apostleship, but it carries further than that. It's not just that. Paul is not a man who spends a lot of time using the first person I, unless he is saying what he's saying here, what I received is not from man. And he's very clear in verse 11, for I would have you know, and I believe if you get nothing out of Galatians over the next four months, that you would get this, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not according to man. Paul says, my apostleship, then again, by extension, his gospel, I believe, is not sent from men, verse 1. Not sent from men. It's looking at the source of the authority. It's, it's where that authority comes from. And he says it's, it's not from men. Anybody in Jerusalem, anybody in Antioch, anybody who has any authority over the apostles didn't give me this gospel. He says it was not sent through the agency of man. That, that points to a medium. That points to someone or something by which the authority is conveyed. A, a, a representative of that authority giving him the gospel. And, and Paul is saying, no, I did not receive it from men, nor through men, nor according to man, He says, I'm not seeking the favor of men. I'm not seeking to tell you that I want to be popular among you, so I am going to tailor my gospel for you, or that I want to find favor with you, that I want to conciliate with you, that I want to logically reason with you on your basis. He says, no, my gospel is not according to man. It's not in accord with his ideas. It's not his invention. It's not his devising. But if it's not, if it did not come through men, if it didn't come by the agency of man, how did it come? I believe that Paul leaves us only one choice. But if it is not according to man, then it must be according to God himself. In Hebrews 1, the preacher to the Hebrews writes that God spoke in latter days. He spoke through the prophets. And later he says, in these days he has spoken to us by his Son. There are those who say that the, the beginning of Genesis is, is the first sermon. The first words that we hear at creation when God looked at the darkness and he said, let there be light. It was the first sermon ever preached because he is saying God speaks. God is a God who communicates. God is a God who reveals himself, sometimes through signs, sometimes through visions. But what we see, and we've seen this in our Thursday night study with God speaking to Abram, 
The, the scripture very plainly says, and God spoke to Abraham and told him to get up out of Ur of the Chaldees and go. And we, we understand that he spoke to the prophets, that he spoke to them in an audible voice. When Jesus was being baptized, we, we, we hear that voice. At least John has told us we can hear that voice. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. God speaks. And, and that's why we read the scriptures. That's why we search the scriptures. Because we desire to hear the voice of God as given to us by the scriptures. When we reject God speaking, when we respect, reject his word, we are respecting God himself, or rejecting God himself. People naturally prefer a dumb God, do they not? They prefer a faraway God who is silent. Why? Because he makes no demands. He asks no questions. He doesn't make any promises, and he doesn't issue any threats of punishment. People prefer a God who is silent. But the scripture that we read this morning from Psalm 29 tells us we cannot ignore the voice of the Lord. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship him in holy array. There, there's, to the believer, there are the, these words that say, no, that is not the proper response to hearing the word of God. In that context, ascribe means to give. To give to Jehovah his rightful due. Why? Because we're men. And if we do not give Jehovah his rightful due, then we are apt to claim it for ourselves. Worship the Lord in holy array. It means bow down, bow down before Jehovah, taking that humble attitude of a servant. He is holy and we are not. He is powerful and we are not. He is glorious and we are not. The first, a scribe, speaks to the, the mind, to, to the, do you not understand that it is not you, but it is God? And the second speaks to the will. Will you not respond to the voice of the Lord? And yes, that psalm speaks of, of God's thundering voice in the thunder of, and lightning of nature and of, of the ocean waves. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The Lord, voice of the Lord is mighty. And yet it reminds us that God speaks and he still speaks. Peter Adams, in his book, Speaking God's Word, says, The response called for in the Bible to hearing the word of God is not mere assent, but faith in the God who speaks the promise, obedience to the God who commands, faithfulness to the God who has made his covenant plain, return to the God who warns, and hope in the God who foretells the future. That's the response required by God speaking. God speaks, God communicates, and he expects that his people will receive that communication and they will act upon it. 
In his first missionary journey, again, in that chapter 13 of Acts, we get down, Paul is having more and more opposition as he goes. And, and as people are responding, there's more opposition. And there are those who are saying, who is this guy and what is he doing? And Paul warns in verse 41 of Acts 13, and he hearkens back to the prophet Habakkuk, where we, we read these words. He says to the opposition, he says, you better not let what God has, has done in ancient days happen to you when God said, I am accomplishing a work in your days which you would not believe. He's, he's immediately looking in his ministry that it is God accomplished these, these things. God who responds to those who reject his word and God who responds and acts toward those who believe his word. Now sometimes Christians are accused of worshiping the Bible. We're accused of, of that our, our worship, our, our faith is in, the, is in the Bible itself. But my faith, my first principle, my foundation, all that I do and all that, that I believe is not in the book itself. It's not even in the accuracy of my particular translation, but it is in the one who speaks. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, himself said, it is written. It, Jesus heard God speaking. We, John tells us this amazing thing in chapter 12 where Jesus says, glorify thy name. And God answers, I have glorified my name and I will glorify it again. God is still speaking and he's speaking through his son. And Jesus is never untruthful. When we respond by faith to the words that God speaks, we are honoring the one who said, I am the truth. Jesus Christ. And so it is not in the book, and it is not to the book that I direct my worship. It is to the infallibility of the Lord Jesus Christ as the foundation of the gospel. And so Paul begins the defense of the gospel. And what we see here is that he puts on display immediately in verse 1 the divine authority not human ideas, not human creativity, not human merit, not through man, he says. Contrast with through Jesus Christ in verse 1. There are some who, who, who make a Hebraistic chiasm, you know, it means a cross. And you, it's not from men, not through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And he doesn't put from there because we see immediately he calls him Jesus Christ. He, he displays Christ in his humanity and in his office of the anointed one, the, the, the Savior, the Messiah. He doesn't put Christ in this gaggle of human agents. He, he stands alone. And, and both his human nature as Jesus and his office as Christ are implied here. 
I mean, Paul never separates those. I, I was in my study, pointed to a verse I'm sure I've read many times before in 1 Corinthians 9. And, it, and Paul is simply asking two questions. But he says, have I not seen Jesus? Are you not my work in the Lord? It's almost as if he is saying, have I not seen Jesus, the human man, and are you not my work in the Lord, the, what the Lord did as Christ? He's saying you can't divorce those things, but it is through him that I receive these things. And so immediately he begins to help us understand what the gospel is not. And I received some help from this in a book that I was reading by Jeffrey Thomas, who is a, a preacher in, in Wales. And if I'm not mistaken, he has been in the same pulpit in Wales in this little community of 15,000 people for over 55 years. And he says, just helping me understand this, what it is not. And, and you, you can probably think of some of these yourself. But he, he says... The gospel is not that man can find wonder and beauty in the universe and the natural world. There are many people who say, you know, I, I go out on the golf course or I go up on the mountaintop or I go to the beach to worship God. And yes, God is the designer. God is the creator of those things. But Machen says, if God be another name for the totality of things, the things in this universe... What comfort does that offer somebody who's oppressed, somebody who's burdened, somebody who's depressed, somebody who's suffering? You've already got all the universe. You've already got all this stuff. And if God is just another name for that, are you any better off? The gospel is not, what would Jesus do? Everything that you could think of here can't be good news. It's not good news to someone that there is only one man in the history of the world who has obeyed God wholly and righteously and fully, and nobody else can do it. Is that good news? No, I don't think so. The gospel is not that you must be converted. Now hear me out on this, because it took me a little while to think this one through. I know, John 3, you must be born again. But sometimes when the gospel is proclaimed, it is you must change, you must be converted. Luther said that was the worst evangelistic phrase you could ever use is to use the word conversion. Because what people mean, and if, if you've ever seen a sitcom where there's any hint of religious conversion, it's always get, getting a big laugh, is it not? Or ridiculed. Because the idea is that everything that natural man or woman desires in life as a natural person <laughs> is disagreeable to the gospel, unnecessary for the gospel, and undesirable 
for them because it means a change of their lifestyle. It means a change in their mind and their thinking and their energies and the way that they live. And that's not good news to people. But Christian theism, call it biblical theism, call it Calvinism, call it Reformed theology, it is, as Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield said, the quote, the vision of God in his majesty, end quote. That is the beginning of the gospel, the vision of God through the word of God. And it's a funny thing about the defense of the faith. When Jesus spoke, when Stephen, the first martyr, gave that sermon to the people and spoke about the history of what God had done, when Paul speaks and defends the gospel, they are not asking for decisions. They're not asking for a verdict on the gospel. People didn't leave the scene where Stephen was on his knees looking up into heaven and go to their homes and say, you know what, I heard a pretty good sermon today. On a scale from one to 10, I would give it a seven. Stephen was not asking for those things. Paul is not trying to be seeker-sensitive when he defends the gospel. They were asking for repentance and faith. They were asking for submission and a turning from sin to God. Yes, we must defend the gospel. We, we must answer objections. And we're told in Scripture, give a reason for the hope that is within you. We must be prepared for that. But the gospel is not to be voted on. We saw, you know, in our recent election, people say, we want a democracy. The gospel is not a democracy. You don't get to vote. And the gospel is discriminatory. The gospel does divide. Isn't that what Jesus said? It's going to divide father and mother. It's going to divide father and son, mother and daughter, brother and brother, sister and sister. The gospel shows the difference between believers and non-believers. The truth of the gospel is not on trial when we defend it. The hearer is. We are the ones on trial. Stephen's hearers were the ones on trial. Do you believe? Paul's hearers, Paul's audience, even Galatians who call themselves believers, they are on trial. Is this the gospel you have received? What Ariel read earlier. Did you receive it through the flesh? Paul says, not according to man. My gospel is not according to man. The defense of the gospel is a fight. And Galatians is a fighting letter. One writer compares Galatians to Romans. And that's probably the letter that it's closest to. 
But he says, Romans as Galatians developed, elaborated, and stated in a more dispassionate way. I, again, I don't think Paul is dispassionate about anything. He's passionate about people who rejoice in Christ. He's passionate about telling people, you're not following the gospel that I preached. And God is looking, I think, through this letter, through the words of Paul, for men who can say no. People who can say no to the error of the gospel in our day. People could say no to compromises, both when people add to the gospel and people who subtract from the gospel. He's looking for men and women who trust the sovereignty of God. This is his plan of salvation and not man's. People who desire his desire, his glory alone. Men and women who will not shrink back, but will enter the battle. Even though we know the gospel is discriminatory in nature, it, it, it preaches there is a believer and there is the unbeliever. It makes the choice clear. The gospel is a signpost that says either you're going that way or you're going that way, but you cannot compromise. Paul says, my gospel that I received, and I would have you understand this first of all, that it is not according to men. Not to please men, not to win their favor, not from man's mind, but from God's mind. Not through a revelation of an earthly medium, but through God's champion, the God-man, Jesus Christ. That the gospel truly becomes, and as what it is, the vision of God in his majesty. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us. Help us to think these things through. Help us to understand them. Help us to walk by them. We pray that we would give to you all the glory that is due to your name. We pray that we would bow down and worship you in holy array, giving you all glory, all honor, all that is rightfully due to you. Again, build your church. Make it glorifying to the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that you would do these things in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please rise for the benediction from the book of Jude. Starting at verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life.